You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland. God is showing that in Messiah, the Messiah of Israel, all are together. All are under one leadership. All are united. All are speaking the same praises of God. They're unified in spirit, even though their languages are different. People in the country of India today who are worshiping are one with us. People in the country of Mexico today who are worshiping Christ with the true gospel are one with us. Division is rampant in the world we live in today. We have so many things that we divide over, whether it's politics, culture, status, or some other thing. It's undeniable that the current status of humanity is divided. In today's message, Pastor Tom teaches us about the unity that's available in Christ. Ever since the Tower of Babel, man has been divided by simple things, like the language they speak. But in Christ, even language barriers can't keep us apart. Have you experienced the unity that comes from knowing Christ? Now, here's Pastor Tom in the book of Acts chapter 2 as he continues his message, Gift of Tongues, Reversal of Babel. This is very interesting. In verse 6, that term that is translated bewildered by the NASB, sunkeo, that term is exactly the same term that is used in the Greek Old Testament in Genesis, that is the Septuagint there, the Greek Old Testament, for the confusion that happened, guess where? At the Tower of Babel. That's right, in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 9. Back at the Tower of Babel, you remember the story. God confused the languages. Why? Because they were disobeying God. God said, scatter. They came together and said, let's build a great tower to make a name for ourselves, right? God comes down to see their great tower. By the way, I find that ironic for God to even find their tower. He had to come down to see what they were doing. It was so small from God's perspective, right? He comes down, he spots this tower, and he basically says, that's not what I told him to do. You know, I told him to scatter. And so he just confuses their languages and they're trying to build the bricks and do the project and they're getting on one another's nerves. And just overnight, the whole project, this massive project, probably the greatest building project post the flood anyways, it just comes to a halt immediately. And God did it on purpose. You're not going to be together. No, 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 no. You're going to spread. And that's the way it's going to be. And now the Jews here on Pentecost are standing together in Jerusalem and they're listening to a chorus of all these different languages from those faraway places and they also are confused. So you have confusion at Babel, but you have a different kind of a confusion now. All the languages are coming together and this this group of Galileans are speaking it and they're confused about that. What does that mean? Well, I think it is clear that at least at some level, Pentecost is meant to foreshadow the turning back of the Tower of Babel, the reversal of the Tower of Babel. Obviously, Tower of Babel in the world's sake has not been reversed. Babel resulted in in a needed separation. Babel resulted in a needed scattering. God didn't want unbelievers who were rebellious to be together. That was a bad thing. To have all unbelievers in the world cooperating together was not a good thing. It was a bad thing. And this is the only time there's been one world government in the world. And God looked at it and said, "Uh uh-uh, it's not happening. It's too much evil too quickly. God had a plan for the nations. He had a plan for the thousands of years. And so he scattered them so he could work his plan through those nations. But here, the miracle 
of Pentecost demonstrates that in Christ, listen, not in the world, in Christ, in the body of Christ, there is to be unity of the different peoples and tribes and, yes, tongues and, yes, nations. The unbelieving world must needs remain divided. God's people must be united. God was not happy with the unity of the unbelievers at Babel. They all spoke one language. They all were together in one place. They all were under one evil leadership. But they were up to no good. Their purpose was disobedient. Their purpose was blasphemous. They wanted to make a name for themselves, and God said, enough, I'll confuse your minds and your languages. And that will remain in confusion until the end times. When the end times come, the Bible makes it very clear that that one world government and that one world economy and that one world togetherness and that one world cooperation will happen again. Indeed, the forces of globalism are already very much alive in our world today. And beloved, it will not be a good thing. It'll be a very, very evil thing because the head of that system will be the man of sin or more commonly known, the Antichrist. That will not be a good thing when that happens. But in the church, God is showing that in Messiah, the Messiah of Israel, all are together. All are under one leadership. All are united. All are speaking the same praises of God. They're unified in spirit, even though their languages are different. People in the country of India today who are worshiping are one with us. People in the country of Mexico today who are worshiping Christ with the true gospel are one with us. People in South Africa today who are worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as the Messiah of Israel, are one with you and me. People in Australia, yes, even in Syria, where they may be doing it in private, where they may have to hide, or in China, where it's in the underground church, their spirit is knit to our spirit, and we are knit to Christ, and we are one. And with one voice, we honor the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Divisions necessary among unbelievers. It establishes nation against nation and keeps evil in checks and balances. But divisions in the body of Christ are disastrous because we're one body, one spirit, one faith, and one everything else. Pentecost, with the spirit of Jesus, begins the reversal of Babel so that by the time we get to the book of Revelation, which is futuristic in the end times, you hear in Revelation 5, 9, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. This, of course, is to Christ. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The gift of tongues was a sign to indicate that purpose. Samuel Waldron, in his book, To Be Continued, with a question mark, writes this, tongues mark the reversal of Babel and the universality of the new covenant. The curse of Babel divided the nations by imposing different languages. When on the day of Pentecost, the word of God was proclaimed in many tongues, this was a sign that the curse of Babel was now to be reversed. 
Many nations and peoples were to be reconciled in the one Christ and in his work of redemption. End quote. This is the purpose of talking in different languages. The signal to the Jews, unity of all peoples in their Messiah, praising God. Invariably, though, as straightforward as this text is, people, especially those caught up in churches who value ecstatic utterances and who equate them with the gift of tongues, have some objections. Things don't really need to be complicated, but because of poor teaching, people still have considerable confusion over this, which is supposed to be straightforward. And I share these with you just to dispel some of the confusion to aid you. For example, some have tried to justify speaking in ecstatic syllables by claiming that the miracle on the day of Pentecost was not actually in the speaking by the disciples, but was in the hearing by the Jerusalem crowd. Some have claimed that all of the disciples actually spoke in ecstatic languages, but God caused a miracle not in the speaking, but in the hearing. In other words, it came out ecstatic and went in organized language. Now, that is what you call creative Bible interpretation. But it is not accurate. It does not pay attention to what is said. Please notice the text explicitly says in verse 4 that they spoke with other tongues. This is not rocket science, people. The reason they heard them speaking in other tongues was because that's exactly what they were doing. Besides, that would make the miracle be coming from the unbelievers rather than from the believers, and that would be all backwards. There is a reason it is called the gift of tongues and not the gift of ears. Beware, beloved, on this issue or any issue like it, when you feel very strongly about something and you've made some application, or you've come from some religious background, and you try to press the Scripture to say what you were taught or what you think it should say, or to interpret it in the way you want to hear it, that is a misuse of the words of the Holy Spirit who inspired this book. Now, others object and say, but the charge that the disciples were drunk with sweet wine, down in verse 13, that must point to the fact that they were speaking an ecstatic, nonsensical speech. No, that's not true either. Otherwise, the charge would have stuck. And Peter's explanation in verses 14 and following would not have dispelled their objection. And no one would have believed that a miracle had happened and the crowd would have dispersed what would be the point in gathering. Notice only some of them said that in verse 13. Only some in the crowd rushed to a judgment as they began to hear the noise, and they mocked because they heard the disciples very joyfully speaking loudly in some language. They didn't immediately recognize, so they said, oh, they're drunk. Please understand that not one Jew out there in the crowd would have understood all of the languages being spoken, so they might have thought that it sounded like gibberish at first from a distance. But as the crowd came together and listened, they began to testify, wait, that's my language. I hear that. That's being spoken like we have back home. With closer listening, they came to understand this was a noteworthy miracle. Others have focused on the word at the end of verse 4, if you go back there again, where it says utterance. The Spirit was giving them utterance, and they claim that that Greek word indicates something that would not be normal speech, but it would point to ecstatic speech. That's not true either. The same term is used in verse 14 here in chapter 2 of Peter's declaration in his sermon, which is pretty normal speech. 
And it is also used of Paul's logical testimony in Acts chapter 26 and verse 25. There he actually said, I utter words of sober truth. Then others have tried to tie all of this to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 1, where Paul writes, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and they claim that ecstatic speech is the tongues of angels. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, Paul was merely speaking hypothetically. And in each case, he is using hyperbole to make a point about the greatness of love over anyone who has super faith, super knowledge, super insight into mysteries, or could speak so many languages that he could even speak the language of angels. Nothing, nothing at all ties angel talk to speaking in tongues. It's a complete fabrication. Besides, I doubt too many angels in heaven go around speaking Egyptian and Parthenian up there in, in heaven. Fortunately, most people involved in the tongues debate today have conceded that the tongues that were spoken on the day of Pentecost were real human languages, known in the world but unknown to these Galileans. It's really not deniable. And we do not have time to study it in detail. But this is also true of all the other tongues speaking in the rest of the Bible. The other mentions of the gift of languages in Acts chapter 8 or Acts 10 or Acts 19 all use the exact same phraseology and terminology as they do in Acts chapter 2. They all depend on Luke's first explanation of what the gift was in Acts 2. In Acts 2, he mentions it first and he describes it longest. Then when he gets to Acts 8 and 10, same writer, he doesn't need to go back and explain what that gift is because as any good writer would do, by the time you get to later chapters, you just simply refer to what he wrote earlier and you know what the phenomenon is. And that's what Luke does. Again, going to that book, To Be Continued, Samuel Waldron makes these points. Given the indisputable precedent of Acts chapter 2, there is every reason to conclude that the other instances of tongue speaking in Acts were also human languages. Acts 2 sets the precedent for the meaning of tongues in Acts and the rest of the New Testament. This precedent must control how we interpret the other mentions of the gift of tongues in the book of Acts. It would take the strongest evidence to overturn this presumption. As a matter of fact, no evidence of any kind exists to show that the tongues of Acts 10.46 and 19.6 were anything else than foreign languages, end quote. The same is true in the mentioning of tongues in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Again, they all use the exact same terminology. Glossa laleia, talking in languages. And they also all function as a sign to unbelieving Jews in each of the contexts. In 1 Corinthians 14, the only time that believers benefit from the speaking in tongues, as Paul writes about it, is when that foreign language can be interpreted so that everyone else can comprehend the meaning with their minds and then be edified and be sanctified. Please remember that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, was a traveling partner with the Apostle Paul. Luke wrote the book of Acts... Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians. If they're using the exact same terminology to describe some phenomenon, and they taught together and they traveled together, then they must mean the same thing. So it's the same gift everywhere else in Holy Scripture. 
There are some, however, who wonder about that very interesting statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 2, which says this, For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. And again, many find in those words justification for speaking ecstatic syllables which have no meaning. They call that a mystery. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, this merely means that someone does not understand the tongues because there is no interpreter. God, however, knows all human languages spoken in the world. Otherwise, how can he answer their prayers? So he understands what the person speaking in the tongue means. God doesn't need an interpreter. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is a strong admonishment to the Corinthian church not to speak in tongues without an interpreter. The only value tongues has to a believer is to understand the words. Because when the foreign language is interpreted and then they understand it, then that gift functions in the same way that the gift of prophecy did in the early church, bringing the word of God in their own language to their own minds so their faith can be built up. Others even ask about Romans chapter 8 and verse 26 that says the Spirit intercedes for us believers with groanings too deep for words. And again, they're looking for a verse that might justify the ecstatic speech. And they think, there it is. That's what's happening. The Spirit is speaking with groanings too deep for words. And I say, yes, the Spirit of God does speak with groanings too deep for words. But it is the Spirit who is speaking, not the human being in that passage. And he is groaning. He's not speaking gibberish. Others ask, but what about a special prayer language? Couldn't that be what ecstatic utterance is? Beloved, we don't need a prayer language. We already have it. It's called faith, and it's called submission to God's will. It's the language of Scripture. I think that God hears us just fine in our own language. I really do. If there is a prayer language in the world, it is that language of faith. And so that's all we need, not gibberish. Don't be fooled and don't be led astray by something that carries with it some kind of worldly aura that it is a movement of the Spirit of God when it clearly does not coincide with the teaching of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. And that's the application for today. It's a lot of information, but it's important to study that doctrine. How do I apply something like that? It's simply this. Make your enthusiasm for the Holy Spirit also combined with your correct interpretation of Scripture. You do not interpret the Scriptures by your experience, right? Rather, you interpret your experience by what? Scripture. That is the application. We must explain experiences we have in our spiritual lives with a proper handling of God's Word, which, by the way, are the words of the Holy Spirit. If we want to know what the Holy Spirit is up to inside of us or around us, we need to read what the Holy Spirit has written and told us to listen to. You must have both Spirit-filled zeal for the things of God, and you must have cognitive and careful biblical doctrine. You must not pit one against the other and say, well, I'm more this or I'm more that. 
You must not be so free and so easy that you twist God's words to endorse your feelings and your experiences. And in counterpose, you must not learn doctrine in such a way that you minimize vital Christian experience. Don't learn the Christian faith in a passive way. Learn it in a zealous way because that's what it is supposed to be. Even with the Lord Jesus Christ, it was said of him when he came to the temple, zeal for thy house has consumed you. We are to love correct doctrine, but we are to live it passionately. I know that people get so personally offended by this issue because they swear that their experience is from the Holy Spirit. What I would swear is that they are in the Holy Spirit and they have a relationship with the Holy Spirit, but they've misunderstood their experience. You can have good motives and you can want to please God and you can be in prayer, but you can still be misled in practice. The only way to know that you're not being misled in practice is not by some mystical experience or by some thought you have in your conscience, but it is by the teaching of Scripture. That's the anchor to make sure that you don't drift into Satan hijacking a legitimate spiritual impulse and emotion and taking it in a direction that does not actually bring honor to the Holy Spirit. You need to combine zeal for the things of the Spirit with accuracy and biblical instruction. So people of God live for God and always, always translate your understanding of what's going on around you through the careful teaching of the Word of God. The last question that people have, of course, is our tongues for today. Clearly, just by listening, you can tell that the vast majority of the so-called tongue-speaking movement in our world today and in our churches today that's going on broadly and vastly now really all over the globe is not, is not the gift of the Holy Spirit. It is not the gift that the Holy Spirit gave on the day of Pentecost. It just doesn't measure up. It is not the miracle of foreign languages. It does not measure up to a New Testament definition of the gift. The modern tongues movement is not of God. For whenever men distort the gifts of the Holy Spirit, those who love the Holy Spirit and love the Lord Jesus and love the vitality that the Holy Spirit brings to our spirits and our souls, we must stand up and correct that. It is not loving to remain silent. We love God. We love vital Christian experience too much to let distortions reign. We must be true to the Holy Spirit of God. It is not putting God in a box by insisting that what happens among God's people honors God by practicing what God said we are to practice and by not practicing counterfeits. We must use discernment and we must not let abuses scare us from having experiences with the Holy Spirit of God. Just because there are well-intentioned people who do other things vitally for God does not mean that we should somehow run far away from experiences from God. For He is at work among us. He is in your life if you know Christ. And He attends all the things in the church. He really is the church's administrator. We love Him. We need Him. We rely on Him. We do not want to grieve Him, and we do not want to quench Him. We want to experience the power of the Holy Spirit in all the ministries that we do for His name. Father, thank You for 
allowing Christ to pour out the Spirit for us and to give Him to us, that we would know you more intimately, that we would be empowered by you more consistently. We confess our sins to you now as we come to your table. We confess that we haven't lived up to the resources that you have provided for us. We pray you'd use this time that we might make genuine confession of sin and we might forsake sin, that we might experience the power of your Spirit among us. For so we have preached in the name of your Son, and so we have prayed in the name of Christ. Amen. We hope that you were encouraged by today's message concerning God's purpose and desire for the gift of tongues. As Pastor Tom reminded us, the Bible was written by the Holy Spirit, and so if we want to hear from Him, we need to look no further. In the pages of Scripture, we have everything we need concerning life and godliness, and that includes all we need to know about the gift of tongues and their use in the church. We're blessed to be able to share the good news of the gospel with our listeners through the ministry of Discover Hope. If you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus yet, or if you have more questions, we invite you to visit the What Does It Mean to Be a Christian page under the About Us at HopeBible.org. This will provide you with a concise description of why you need Jesus in your life and how you can be free from sin. We'd like to speak and pray with you too, so please give us a call at 443-200-HOPE. Again, that's 443 443- 200 hope now all the events that happened on that day of pentecost as exciting as they were were all leading up to the most exciting moment that day the preaching of the word of god join us next time as pastor tom teaches us about the first sermon preached that day as recorded in the book of acts the sermon preached by the apostle peter that day had everyone on the edge of their seats and the response was incredible To listen again to today's message in the book of Acts, visit HopeBibleChurch.org and look under the Sermons tab. Pastor Tom will return soon with another in-depth study of God's Word. So join us again right here on Discover Hope.